the real questions that some of us have asked even today. Does the Father love me? Can Jesus really love me? Can the Holy Spirit abide with me after the week that I had? And I, we need to hear the brothers and sisters affirm that yes, the Father really loves us. The Spirit really does move among us. Jesus, our Messiah, holds us forever because of his work on the cross. So we affirm this with great joy. God, you are worthy of all glory and blessing and honor and power and might. For by your will, you created everything and then gave up your own son to redeem it after we fell in sin. <laughs> what manner of love does the Father have for us that we should be called children of God? A worthy God like this who works through providence and irony and turns death into life and snatches life right out of the jaws of death. Who are we to be called your children? And yet you do call us your sons and daughters. We, we praise you, our great God. We look to you now as the one Sean already read for us, the one who sings over us with love. We look to you and we ask that you would bless us with a greater knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, as we open your word. He is the savior of the world. And he is our brother and our friend, those of us who have repented and turned to you for our only hope. We look to him now and we ask that you would receive glory and honor from even the request that we bring to you. We, we pray for those who we haven't seen in a while, those who are, are broken and afraid, they're hurting and isolated. God, we ask that you would be near to them. God, put in our minds to reach out to them this week and tell them that we love them, but the Father truly loves them. God, I pray for those uh, among our membership who are traveling abroad and pray for Becca and Michaela as they are studying in other parts of the world. We pray that as they go, they would bring the light of Jesus to where they are, that you would use this time away in other countries to make them see your glory in other people. I pray that you would help them to study for the glory of God. We, we pray, we thank you that as Becca has found a church over there in, in Italy for a time, that you would, you would help her to, to be steadfast in your love and be growing through the preaching of your word and the fellowship of the saints there in Mosiaco Church. Father, we, we, pray, for, uh, we, we pray for parents among us, that they would love their kids well, that we would love our kids well and bring them up in, in, in the knowledge of you. And we pray that we would be quick to invite our other friends in this church to speak into our lives and help 
us disciple our children for the glory of God. We pray for those of us who are married and those of us who are single to be living our life in in the state in which you have brought us for the glory of God by your help. We pray, Spirit of God, that you would help us to love one another well, that there would be no factions of married people and single people, of college students and professionals. God, would you please help us to be united in the gospel because of your son's work. We pray for uh, our, our working professionals and the students among us, God, that they would, by the power of your spirit, see you at work providentially in your lives and trusting you completely for whatever's next. If they're hopeless, turn them to hope. If they're fearful, turn them to your love. God, we pray that you would do this for our congregation, that we might be a light here um, in Corvallis. And thank you that we're not the only church here in Corvallis. We have gospel partners, and we pray for our fellow gospel partners that we get to stand side by side in the gospel work here. Thank you for Northwest Hills. And we pray that there in North Corvallis, God, you, you would help them as they, as they try to live out your word as they try to apply the gospel to their lives, as they, as they reach out to their friends and loved ones, and as they love one another, would you, your spirit be at work to show them and help them? We pray for Pioneer Church in Southtown, and as they do the same, would you be empowering them by your love and by your spirit, energize them to, for the work that you have for them May the gospel spread, and may they, may they grow, and may people come to know you, and you'd give great grace to them. We pray for our gospel partners in, in Portland, and we thank you for Redemption Church in Northeast Portland, and, and for that new church plant that you have been so faithful and provided so, so, so greatly for. We pray that you continue that. We pray as they, they grow weary and tired in, a, in the second year of a church plant that you, you would help them. You would be their strength, their portion, their shield, everything that they need to be a, a faithful gospel witness there. Virgil and Kelsey, as they, uh, as they struggle with the different kinds of challenges that come their way, both physical and spiritual, emotional, I pray that you would protect their marriage and, and, and keep them in your love. But we also thank you for Chapel Church, that one of our former associate pastors is now pastoring. We thank you for the work there in Puyallup that Stephen Brucker is leading. I pray that you would help him to be faithful that you would help him to see that success is being faithful to you. And would you grant them growth in the gospel and growth in numbers, growth in unity, that we might glorify you. And Father, you have told us to pray for our government, and we thank you that government is a gift from you. And no matter what our viewpoint is or what our politics are, we know that King Jesus has placed people in control and, and governing officials over us so that we might live quiet and peaceable lives. And we pray that that would be the case. We pray for our President Biden and Vice President Harris, that they would govern in a way that we might live quiet and peaceable lives, that you might be glorified. We, play, we pray for our own government Governor Brown and the government, local government officials, that you would help them, give them wisdom, surround them with people of God that would speak truth into their, their lives and that they would govern for uh, your greater glory. 
Father, we pray for the world. We want to see your name famous in every corner of the earth. God, we specifically pray for the Tibetan plateau and the workers that you have there. It is small. Help them not to despise the day of small things. But we pray that you, little by little, just the way you do in ordinary means of grace, will be plucking people out of the darkness and putting them into the kingdom of your Son. Push back against the evil one. You have said the gates of hell will not prevail against your church, and we're praying by faith that you would do that there in the Tibetan plateau. Please, O oh God, may we see people come to know you as their Savior, as the only one that can rescue them from their sins and find hope in you. And as that happens, the churches would be planted and and King Jesus would overtake this dark place for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And now we pray as we turn to the word, would you open your word to us? And we, we have to have the spirit open us to your word. Please do that, oh God. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the things that I say, the, the words that I preach, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, oh Lord, our rock and our deliverer. In Christ's name, amen. Welcome, like I said before, my name is Doug Payne. Welcome here. Uh, go Beavers, right? Yeah, yes, four and one. That's good. It's easy to be a Beaver fan now. Uh, they played the school that I lived close to uh, before we moved here, University of Washington, but we were cheering for, we were cheering for the Beavers. Well, most of us were. Uh, anyway, so, um, you know, I did uh, Master's of Arts in Theological Studies in my, uh, at Erskine Theological Seminary. It's like Moleskine, but Erskine, okay? And uh, the master's degree was in, uh, my focus was in church history. And the project I, I, had, I had done was, uh, my work focused on a man named Lemuel Haynes. He was the first ordained African-American minister in the United States of America. Um, he, uh, Lemuel Haynes, pastored an all-white church in Vermont for over 30 years. This is in this between uh, the 1780s to the 1800s, or this, the 1760s. maybe 60s. Now I'm getting my dates mixed up. But in the 1700s and the 1800s, this is when he pastored an all-white church. And he had an awareness of God's providence from an early age. And by providence, I mean that, you know, providence is God's protective care over the world. He, he saw God's protective care was governing his life from an early late age. He was born into chattel slavery. And basically, he was adopted by a family and uh, educated by a family with the last name of Rose. And he found in them, in that family, God's providential care for him. His favorite verse was Psalm 27.10. When my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. He nearly drowned at a young age. And he had this, this foreboding fear of God's judgment over him. But he, that fear of God's judgment in 
the gospel led him to the sweetness of his Savior, Jesus. And he first heard about Jesus from this family he lived with. And he had, he'd always thank God for this providence in his life. His biographer, Timothy Cooley, he picked up on and observed this providence that, that happened to Lemuel Hayes's, uh, in Lemuel Haynes' life you know, for his 80-plus years. And he, he coined this line, Those who observe providences will have providences to observe. Those who observe providences will have providences to observe. Those who are intent on observing God's tender care in their life will notice that God has been caring for them their whole life. Now, someone might say, well, that's just wish fulfillment or a confirmation bias. You, you want that to happen. You want there to be a God. You want to, to think that all the bad things happening to you will turn out for good. So, you're, you, so you will it to happen by saying it's happening, right? That, you know, that kind of does happen even in Christianity life in, and in life in general. But, but can I ask you to step into this question for a second? If there is a God, is it possible that he can do what the Bible says he does. If God exists, if, if God really does exist like Christians say he does, is it possible that he can do what the Bible says he does? That is to rule all things providentially. So if you're not a Christian, you're, you're more than welcome here. We're thankful that you're here with us. And you, you know, if you've been in church for the first time, you've seen, maybe you've seen things that are strange to you, like singing to someone who you don't see, or people raising their hands, or installing an elder, and that seems all strange to you, but what we want you to see mostly is Jesus Christ, our Savior, come in the flesh to die for you. So as Christians, we believe that this God, who you can't see, does exist and that he's at work in this world fulfilling his good purposes for humanity. And his purpose is to bring glory to himself, right? And if he is what the Bible if he is who the Bible says he is, that's a good thing for the world. And he exists to bring glory to himself and do good for his people and his creation. So, believing in the good, meticulous providence of God is hard, right? Because we all see that there are, there are evil things that are happening in this world. Things are wrong. I just want to encourage you to suspend judgment for a while to see if we can't answer part of the question. If God exists, how is there evil in the world? So part of the reason it is hard to believe in God's providence that he's ruling all things is because God often works through hardship and suffering, right? It's one of the things God does. He loves irony. He loves turning the story from, from something that looks like disaster and death into life and peace. You know, friends, the way God works cannot always be seen by us now like a, a jigsaw puzzle that's on the table a mess until you put it together again and see what the picture is 
the Puritan John Flavel said, Providence, God's providence is like the Hebrew alphabet. It must be read backwards. So Moses, we're in the book of Exodus, chapter 2. And Moses could not see all the ways God was working, you know, from the time of his infancy till the time he's hundreds of years old. He could not see why he was born in the time of the persecution of his people. He did not understand why he had to grow up in Pharaoh's house, only to flee and live in Midian for 40 years. Why it took 80 years for God to finally start his formal ministry. Looking back now, he sees and he writes about the tender providence of God that overruled the forces of evil that were against him. I think what the, he would want the mod, our modern readers like us to learn from this text is to, he would want us to, by faith, take courage because God providentially rules over all. Even if you don't see it now, God is providentially ruling over all. So take courage. We're going to see that in two ways, right? We're, just, we're going to have two big headings that God wants us to trust God and take courage. Trust God and take courage. You don't see God's providential wisdom in all of your life. You can still trust God and take courage. To hear what Holy Scripture says from Exodus chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, it's at the front half of the Bible in the, what we call the Old Testament. This is the Christian Bible. It's broken into Old Testament and New Testament. It goes Genesis, Exodus. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The little numbers, like the footnote numbers, are the verse numbers. We're in Exodus 2, 1 through 10. Hear what Holy Scripture says. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. So trust God's providence. Trust God's providence. You know, the way that Moses is trying to persuade the readers of Exodus to trust God's providence is by the way he uses irony. Irony, you know, the, the dictionary says that it's the expression of one's meaning by using language that normally signifies the opposite. 
So the plot of this story is being moved along by irony and plot twists. So everything Pharaoh does to oppress God's people is providentially used by God for their future deliverance. You know, chapter 2 is coming right out of chapter 1, verse 22. Pharaoh is setting himself up against God. Moses is, is just showing us right from the beginning, Pharaoh is setting himself up against God and his people as more powerful than them. And God is using irony and ordinary things in the text to show us that he is actually in control the whole time. So in chapter 1, verse 22, plan C of Herod's um, population control is to have the Hebrew sons thrown into the Nile River. They are, they are supposed to abort the babies after birth. It's called infanticide. And the way that Herod is going to deal with the, pop, the growing population and God's promises being fulfilled to Israel is to kill the babies. And what does God do in chapter 2, verse 1? He starts to work in ordinary ways through a marriage. Did you notice? In verse 1, a man from the house of Levi went and took as a wife a Levite woman. Pharaoh commands, and God just providentially works through ordinary means like a marriage between a Levite man and a Levite woman. There's no comment here about it, uh, them both being from the tribe of Levi, but that's going to become significant later on because the tribe of Levi is the priestly line, the, the line that represents man towards God. And Moses is going to be in that line. They were going to be, he was going to be a mediator between God and man. And in the natural progression of marriage, God continued to add to God's people. Verse 2. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. The God providentially worked through parents, through a normal thing like marriage and, and giving birth to a child. And when she saw the child, just like any mom who sees a child, her heart goes out to him. It wasn't just that Moses was special in some way. Maybe it was that he was, he was healthy and she saw that he could survive. But it was, it was more Douglas Stewart, who is a commentator on Exodus, says that the Hebrew idiom, raha kitab, means to care about, right? So as a fine child means, actually could be translated, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son longing to have or longing to keep him. She hid him. For three months. So there's a longing in her heart for her son who she sees as a gift from God. And you should notice that the edict of genocide cannot stop the plan of God. God's plan for his family and this people. And I don't know what your situation is, friend. Whether you're maltreated or tyrannized by someone else. Or you're just in a lost place. God would have you know that he is providentially loving you, though you might not feel it or see it right now. God is at work, even though you don't see it. 
Matthew Henry quote should be on the screen for you. Matthew Henry says it this way, faith in God's promises quickens to the use of lawful means for obtaining mercy. It just means that you, know, you, you use the ordinary means of grace uh, when faith is at work seeing God's providences in your life. Duty is ours. Events are God's. Faith in God will set us above the fear of man. And he says this of Exodus 2, at three months end, when they could not hide the infant any longer, they put him in an ark of bulrushes by the river's brink and set his sister to watch. And if the weak affection of a mother were thus careful, were so careful, what shall we think of him, that's God, whose love, whose compassion is as himself boundless? Moses never had a stronger protection about him. No, not when all the Israelites were around his tent in the wilderness. Then now, when he lay alone, a helpless babe upon the waves, no water, no Egyptian can hurt him. When we seem most neglected and forlorn, God is most present with us. Friends, God is working providential means through the providential means uh, of a marriage. And, and here's where the irony starts to set in. He's also working through this parental love. When the river of death becomes the water of life. Here's the first irony. Pharaoh's edict in verse 22, chapter 1, meant that the Nile would become a means of of, of death in Pharaoh's plan, but in God's plan would become a means of life and deliverance. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. There came a time when the baby grew too old and too loud. Uh, she couldn't hide the baby anymore, and the parents said, what are we going to do? But the baby's mother and father, according to Hebrews 11, verse 23, said what they did next was an act of faith. By faith, his parents hid him after three months because they saw that he was a beautiful child, and they did not fear the king's edict. So they hid him, they could be hidden no longer, then they made a basket for him. So how did the waters of death become deliverance for Moses? So the baby was put into a basket. The word for basket is, you probably know if you've been in Sunday school before, that's the word for ark. This word is only used twice in the Old Testament, both in the Genesis passage about Noah's ark and here. The mom, possibly knew of the story of Noah's Ark, probably did, since it was an oral culture, and these stories would have been passed on, that she knew about this, and the Ark becomes a type of salvation, and she thought, maybe, just maybe, God will deliver my son through this Ark. And the point of similarity between the Ark in Genesis and the Ark in Exodus is that the boat provides salvation for God's people. The boat provides deliverance through the waters of judgment. So here she is. She makes the ark waterproof by pitching it with tar and, 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 and bitumen. 
doing her best to keep her son safe. She places him in the water, hoping he will go unnoticed. By faith, she believed that God would provide deliverance. That's, I think that's how we should read this. She, in one sense, o- obeyed the, the d- demand to put him in the water, but she made concessions for her son. She did what she could. And it's best, I think, to understand that she didn't know exactly how the deliverance would happen, but she trusted that the Lord would provide, that God would provide. And God turns the water from a means of death to a means of deliverance. Friend, it could be the very thing that you believe will be the death of you that God is using for your deliverance. I I don't know what that is. I, I don't even think I should guess about what that is. But bring it to mind. What's that one thing you're going through? That, that one person who you think is going to be the death of you, that one circumstance that will be the death of you, is it possible, if God exists, how the Bible says he does exist, that he can use that for your very deliverance? You know, God says, I think, through Exodus, that ironically, he wants you to believe that he will deliver you. Even when things seem like a means of death. So God wants you to trust him because of this ordinary thing like marriage. Because of this ironic twist of the the rivers of death becoming the rivers of life. The waters of life. And thirdly, the, the the second irony in all of this is that God wants you to trust him. Because of the way Moses shows God's providential care through Pharaoh's daughter. This unexpected pity. The second irony shows up as Pharaoh's daughter enters the scene, who, who became a means of deliverance for baby Moses and ultimately God's people. Don't, I, the irony is, is it's beautiful here. Here is Pharaoh giving an edict that you must kill all the baby boys because Israel is going to overtake our land. And now God is using someone from Pharaoh's own family to deliver his people and fulfill.